Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Welcome to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. I'm your host, Co M. David Greiner is off this week. And in the news, Facebook acquires Giphy. Plant based companies are stepping up to the plate. Uh, and streaming wars are at an all time high, maybe. We'll find out very soon because we are joined today by Kelsey Sutton, our streaming editor. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Um, You are in this world um, every day, um, and you have a big piece for us coming out um, about the the state of streaming and the state of the the companies behind streaming. So uh, I want to kind of start off by asking, you know, typically, like, how long do these... um, features, as we call them in a magazine world, uh, take these longer kind of reported pieces just to give our listeners a sense of, you know, the the work that goes into these longer pieces behind the scenes, kind of pull back the curtains. Sure. So I actually started working on this story in probably January, which feels like an eternity ago, as you can imagine, because so much has changed. But uh, I started talking to executives around then, uh, and this one took a little longer than usual. We had sort of planned for it to come out in March, and then, of course, everything really got turned upside down. And so then the question became, what changes and what doesn't change in this space uh, due to the sort of current uh, situation that we all find ourselves in. And so then there was some reworking, some additional calls, making sure that we really understood um, how these different companies are going about building these services and bulking up these services and making these services perfect, in their view, uh, for customers in a time when streaming consumption is just through the roof people are sort of insatiable for new content, whether that's an old show they used to watch on broadcast television or a new original. Uh, And so it's really become paramount for these streaming services, whether they're old, uh, like Netflix is sort of the old guard of of streaming and uh, the reigning (laughs) champion of the streaming space for now. Uh, And these upstarts, you know, companies like we have, NBC Universal's Peacock and Warner Media's HBO Max that haven't launched yet. And they're trying to do the same exact thing. And so it's really kind of an interesting time uh, to be writing about the streaming space and to be working in the streaming space. 
And it's really just sort of a moment like this has really underscored the opportunity, but also the stakes right now. People really want good programming, but as, uh, you know, economic conditions get to where they are, and I think there are a lot of unknowns there, it's also about providing value. And you have to make sure that you're, whatever the price point is, whatever you're offering is worth it to somebody, um, especially. Yeah. And so there's there's a whole lot of consideration that has to go into this that was already happening. And this is really just, I think, emphasized um, sort of how crucial um, streaming is for sort of the future of, of television and the future of entertainment. Yeah, let's consider those numbers. As you write in the piece, streaming time spent uh, over the week of April 13 topped 154.6 billion minutes. According to Nielsen, that's nearly double the amount of time American users were spending one year ago. Obviously, we're going to see some changes when people go back to normal 2.0. I hate to say new normal now because I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> but you know, you mentioned a couple things: price point. Uh, what what is good programming, right? Is it does it mean fresh programming or does it mean like old nostalgia programming? And then also, you know, how do you build value? I think that's really interesting. So, you know, this idea of a perfect streaming service, what factors are you seeing the players um, put emphasis on? You know, it's 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 interesting because the old guard of TV, they're trying to enter uh, this new space. So what are they taking into consideration? Well, I think that from the conversations with people uh, that I've had, sort of this adage remains the same, which is content is king. People are not going to spend time with your service if they don't care about the content on the service. But the question really is what content is king to which people? And so the the approach that a lot of these streamers are taking is getting sort of the right mix of library programming. So that's episodes of television that have already aired, have already been made. They were on, maybe they were on broadcast television or cable in the past. So programming like uh, you know, maybe at Warner Media, we're talking The Sopranos or Sex in mm-hmm. the City or Friends. Maybe at uh, Peacock in 2021, it's The Office. Uh, maybe at Netflix uh, soon, it's going to be Seinfeld. Those sort of tentpole library programming that people love, they go back to again and again and again. Or not even necessarily things like that, but, but uh, shows that have, I guess, a long shelf life. They don't have to necessarily be the number one show, but they're already made. They're already done. You kind of arrange for a, uh, to get the rights to stream that programming. That's great because that offers sort of depth to your library that somebody goes, I really want to watch an action movie this weekend. Uh, let's see what sort of Michael Bay movies are on the service of my choice. Or is there, you know, a different type of action movie that's available on this other service? Um, But then there's also the originals. And what we see in um, some of this research um, that Nielsen has done particularly, um, which is really sort of helpful, is is understanding that when people hear about a program, if if a program is in the zeitgeist, that is a real driver of of awareness. And originals Mm -hmm. are able to do that in a way that... 
uh, you know, a library show isn't necessarily able to do that because it's new, because critics are talking about it, because it's has, you know, features a celebrity who's getting a lot of attention or something like that. And so originals are also really important. And what originals also do, which is really helpful for a streamer like Netflix, for instance, that doesn't have that doesn't own library programming because they've never been in the television in the linear television business is that they then have that forever. So the originals right. that come in um, you know provide the ability of, of sort of newness and excitement um, and press and and the, that sort of zeitgeist that really drives awareness for programs, but also they keep it forever. Um, and so it's really figuring out that right balance, something that's really interesting that I was talking to some, uh, you know, executives about is the library also can signal things, not just to consumers, but also to people that you want to work with. So, um, what does that mean? I was talking to Kevin Riley, who's the chief content officer of HBO Max. He's also the president of TNT, TBS, and True TV. And what he told me is they, uh, Warner Media struck a deal to bring the animated films from Studio Ghibli to HBO Max. Um, and that's the first time that those films, uh, which is like Princess Mononoke and uh, titles like that, um, my neighbor T- Totoro, uh, are that that's the first time that, that that programming has been available on a streamer. But what mm. that also signaled to creators is we're the kind of place that wants to have programming like that. So it's kind right. of interesting because it's you want to uh, you want to signal obviously to consumers come watch this, but there's also a little bit of a uh, you also want to signal the right signals to people who are actually making programming that were the type of service where you want to work. And uh, Craig Erwick, who heads up originals over at Hulu, said a similar thing to me, uh, particularly about their marketing strategy. And he mm-hmm. wants creators to see when they invest in marketing on certain shows that Hulu is a place where you will get that sort of level of care and effort uh, and investment in marketing whatever project you're working on. So it's, there are so many layers to attract, to building out something good, because of course you want to have the right creators to make content that people want. Um, but it's sort of all, there's sort of a feedback loop almost, right? You, you have the right show to signal to the creator to come to the show uh, or to come to your service, which then brings the audience. And then that sort of cycle continues. And of course, that evolves yeah. and changes as consumer tastes change and vary. And um, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. And as someone who watches uh, a, lot of tele- a lot of programming on these services, you can kind of see uh, you know, once you know what's happening behind the scenes, it kind of gives you a different perspective on oh, why is this show, I mean, why, why is this show showing up on Netflix or on, uh, you know, HBO Max or on Peacock? <laughs> then you can kind of, uh, yeah. there's a little bit of a peek behind the curtain there. Yeah, it's hard to turn off your brain once you've like, uh, know what's happening really. Or like, for me, it's like, production I'm like oh I know why they did that or didn't do that and or why is that product placement there and um I think you know that was a smart move by HBO Max to to bring in the animation at least for now right because 
um, production is stalled and um, to, to kind of bring in more animated uh, joys might be a good move there. I want to go back to, to marketing. You know, are you finding as there, everyone's trying to build the perfect streaming service, how are they going about perfecting their marketing strategy? You know, are, are you seeing differences in, in styles? Are they going along with the branding, the initial branding that they had? Um, or, you know, in the case of, you know, Disney plus, like, are they just following the umbrella of Disney? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I really think there's a, a balancing act that streaming services have to ask themselves is the best approach sort of at any given moment in time. Is it best to market a specific show or do we have to market the whole service? And when you market the whole service, you don't necessarily have the standout one show. You're trying to show to a potential customer or to a customer maybe who's already in and you just want to confirm, you know, keep our, keep our service, <laughs> um, is, uh, is you, you have to, you're sort of giving up the depth of, of attracting them with one show with sort of showing the breadth of the platform. Um, and something that has been made more complicated by this whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic is these sort of traditional marketing vehicles that are really important have gone away to some extent. So billboards, those mm-hmm. don't work very much. <laughs> those, those don't work as well right now. Um, or uh, even uh, live sporting events, which were going to be big marketing vehicles for HBO Max and for Quibi, uh, which is, uh, I think we've, maybe we talked about that on the last time I was on the podcast, but a short form uh, Mm -hmm. social or or not social, mobile first platform. So those were going to be really important. I talked to uh, Chris Spadaccini, who's uh, Warner Media Entertainment's chief marketing officer, really about how HBO Max had to rethink their marketing strategy because of this, you know, you had to pull back a little bit on billboard. You had to change your strategy around March madness. Uh, and, and what he told me that I thought was so interesting is part of it is what things are going to be held for later. What can we use as a payoff later? Uh, maybe, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a Met Gala, uh, sponsorship or, or something like that, or, But then what else do you do kind of in the here and now to manufacture that cultural moment? Uh, And that's exactly hard. Yeah. And that's exactly what he said. He said, you have to manufacture our own cultural moment um, to create a big event feel without any big events. (laughs) And that's a real challenge. And that, of course, you know, differs depending on which streamer you're talking to, what their customer, what their sort of perfect customer base is. Um, so it's just, again, the sort of alchemy that goes into figuring this out is just, it's such a heavy lift and, um, it's just really kind of remarkable to see the way in which this already really, I guess, uh, momentous task has been made even more complex, um, with, uh, with COVID-19 Peacock, of course, was planning a big, push for their service around the Olympics, which are now, um, you know, being, are are postponed for a year. So the question is, what does that promotion looks like, look like a year later? 
after Peacock uh, premieres nationally in July. What is that? How do you promote a service a year after its its buzzy debut, or what they're hoping will be a buzzy debut? Um, but but executives have said there, you know, the hope is that they'll be able to do that, and and that Peacock will actually be in a better position because it will have more programming and and uh, even more to offer customers by the time they get around to to being able to market using the Olympics um, as that vehicle for marketing. Yeah, yeah. So right now, you know, live sports is not part of any promotional materials. But like, I just thought of something that's, you know, might be, might be weird. But the only people that, you know, could have benefited from outdoor ads and, um, or maybe from Quibi might have been like the healthcare workers. So if there was like a specific streaming service for healthcare workers for their breaks, like that would have been great. <laughs> um, but that being said, I do want to mention the two smaller players that uh, you act included in your sidebar, um, Pluto TV and Tubi, uh, and they're free with ads. So are, are people or advertisers, um, very excited about being on these services. And of course they have to change their messaging too, right? Unless they're using stock, stock images or, um, you know, old, old ads or animations or something. Yeah. I think that it's, what's going to be really interesting with Pluto TV and Tubi is how they fit into these broader streaming strategies of their parent companies. So Pluto TV is owned by Viacom CBS. Uh, that acquisition happened, I believe, last year, January. And uh, they're up to 24 million monthly active users. As you said, free with ads. And the idea with Pluto TV as part of this bigger uh, portfolio of Viacom CBS, which of course has CBS All Access, which is sort of a general interest uh, paid streamer. Then there's Showtime, which is, of course, you pay for it premium cable, or you can pay for it as an OTT offering, uh, and some, some other smaller streamers that Viacom CBS owns. The idea is that that will be sort of the, the entry point for a lot of people. And uh, something that's going to be really interesting as this continues to, to flesh out, as the, you know, the company figures out exactly what this is going to look like, is they're thinking, we'll do free... Uh, free episodes of premium content on, maybe it's only available on CBS All Access, but you can watch a free episode on Pluto TV. Now, the hope is that they can upsell a little bit and use that as a funnel in. And that's exactly what Peacock is also thinking about. So Peacock will have a free tier, um, 7,500 hours, I believe. And part of that will be free select episodes of some of their originals which are only available through the premium tier, which you pay a little bit for. So that's the thinking there. Tubi, on the other hand, is owned uh, by Fox Corporation, which I guess that closed in March, I believe. And they have about 25 million monthly active users um, and is also free with ads, as you said. And so they're really getting a boost right now from some of Fox's programming. Um, but the question is, you know, how do you how do you... Uh, on one hand, the, the, what's, what better value than free, right? And I think that's sort of the, the emphasis, the expectation is there's nothing better than free, but then you also balance that with what sort of programming is available and what's the value proposition then? How do you, uh, you know, monetize that effectively? So, 
Uh, I think the thinking is really there will be a lot of both. There will be people who will pay for premium services and are willing to put a certain amount of their monthly budget to that. Uh, Something that Netflix said, one of Netflix uh, executives said on a recent earnings call is that um, in-home entertainment is a little bit more resilient Um, in economic downturns because maybe you're not going out to visit theme parks or going to the movies all that often, but you do need to, you do want to have entertainment at home. And so that's a more cost-effective option for that. Um, But I think the ad-supported streamers are also saying there's an opportunity here too. You know, we offer, you don't have to, you don't have to consider us in part of your monthly budget planning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're here, we have programming all the time. And of course, that is um, appealing to to advertisers, particularly as they think about where they're going to sort of allocate their marketing funds, which, of course, are, I think, as as we've all been rep- reporting a lot about at Adweek, are really under strain right now, mm-hmm. um, just yeah. due to, to all, all the uncertainty. So, it's a moment of such opportunity, um, and uh, it's really, I think, an acceleration point uh, mm-hmm. for the for streaming. But the question again is, how do you execute that? And uh, so, but I think the feeling is is, and executives will tell you this over and over again is, you know, they're not looking at this as a winner take all sort of game. There is room for multiple services. I pay for multiple services in my household. Part of that is because it's my job, but also, you know, I watch programming on those, um, you know, on those services. Uh, so it's not, uh, but, and, and so they say there, you know, there's room for multiple winners. And, and what they've also said is, you know, we're not hitting that level of subscription f- fatigue that we were talking about just a couple mm. months ago, right? That had been sort of a, Concern. A lot of ad-supported streamers really emphasize that as people are going to get sick of paying for, you know, service after service after service. And the question now is, well, people are watching <laughs> so much more, as you said, twice as much streaming hours spent uh, in April or the, that uh, the second week of April um, this year than a year ago. So clearly, there's a, a heavy appetite for programming, and so it's really just figuring out. Um, how do you get in front of the right people? How do you convince them to pay? And uh, we'll see that continue to shake out for years, um, which is good news for me. I'll have plenty to write about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and stay too. Um, I guess I guess what I'm taking away is that there are several definitions of a perfect streaming service, and we have access sometimes to all of them. So uh, Kelsey Sutton, our streaming editor, thank you so much for your reporting and your insights. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It was so fun, Co. Looking forward to the (laughs) next time. Yes. Um, And next up, after the break, we are going to catch up with Stacey Bendett, the CEO and creative director of Allison of Olivia, and she also uh, just accelerated a creative jobs platform, um, especially during this time. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. And we are now joined by Stacey Bendett of Allison Olivia. Uh, hi, Stacey. Thanks so much for joining us from Malibu. 
Hi. Yeah, it's it's so surreal um, doing interviews and all kinds of Zooms and other things um, from out here. It's It's been a, a fascinating experience, but I do feel really lucky to be quarantined somewhere very beautiful and sunny and warm. So, Right. A nice contrast to um, the sometimes uh, darker shifting realities of every day. Um, for people who don't know you, uh, you know, you're uh, a creative, you're a businesswoman. Um, how can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how things are looking now with retail? Yes. I mean, I'm also a born and raised New Yorker. So being out on the West Coast has been an experience for me for this long. But um, I I founded Alice and Olivia, the clothing company in, in 2002. And I've run that from, you know, a, a, the first pair of pants that I made in my living room to building a, um, you know, sort of global, I guess, empire. It's weird for me to say that, but um, a global fashion brand with stores all over the world. We have retail stores in Asia, in um, the Middle East, all over the United States. Um, and we sell, we have uh, uh, 40 of our own stores and then we sell in around 800 other points of sale. And um, last week I launched a new business called Creatively, which is a professional platform, sort of like a LinkedIn for the creative world, where creative people of all genres, not just fashion, can put up not just their resume, but also very detailed, very beautiful portfolios. It's almost like an art gallery for creatives. Um, And companies like mine can go on Creatively to discover new talent. Um, yeah. so that's been a really exciting, um, you know, it's been, I, I've been, I worked on it for about a year and we decided to launch it last week because uh, earlier than planned, because we saw that there were so many creatives right now who are graduating from school and don't have job opportunities, who haven't worked in months and don't know when they will again. And we thought that by, um, launching the platform now, we could really provide for some hope and opportunity for creative people globally. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's so great what you're doing because um, you're responding to a need that was there before, right? From yeah. a design perspective, um, but also this greater demand for people um, who are looking for jobs and want to find a way to share their their work and their capabilities. Their yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what's the kind of response that, you know, you've seen so far and what did it take to accelerate that process? Right. Well, yeah. And, and just going back to what you said before, I mean, I really did start this um, over a year ago and it was based on something I felt was a missing need in the world. And and when I started Alice and Olivia and I made our first pants, it was the same kind of feeling. It was like a fire inside me that was like, you know, why, why is everyone wearing jeans? Why aren't there any fun pants for like people to wear? And, and that was literally how I started Alice and Olivia. And this was a similar feeling where I just every day was, you know, go, when I was, whenever I was hiring anyone and it wasn't just like specifically in design, it would be a graphic designer, a pattern maker, a fabric buyer, someone for marketing. I just kept feeling like that the job platforms that existed to recruit people and to connect with people on just didn't adequately show the work of talent. It didn't verify their work. And it made the hiring process overly tedious. And I found that everyone I talked to in different industries, when you ask them about hiring creatives, they were like, oh, you know, sort of like exasperated roll of the eyes, right? Right. 
So mm. that's kind of what led up to starting to build creatively. And the reason why, again, we decided to launch it early was that, you know, look at the times that we're in right now. You know, you have over 30 million people who are unemployed, and that's not really accurately accounting for the millions of creatives who work in mostly freelance capacity. They might work every right. day, but they're considered freelance jobs. So on, you know, in the music world, in the film world, in the fashion world, like nothing's being made right now. You don't have events, you don't have production, you don't have shoots. And there are so many people that are, you know, uh, being, you know, they're, they, they don't have the opportunity for work. And at the same time, companies are starting to have to build up again and we still need content, right? Like everyone still needs to create content for social media, for e-com, even in Hollywood, like film production, but all of these productions need to be smaller. And a lot of these things are going to be done, um, you know, in, in sort of what I'm going to call like mini shoots and mini production. And there are going to be a lot of opportunities to to hire talent again and for talent again, but we need to be able to connect the corporate world and the creative world in a new way. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're, yeah, it's a time for disruption and for new kinds of demand. Um, Allison Olivia is one of the brands already on the platform. Yeah. I'm sure you have had to deal with and shift a lot of positions and needs. So what, what kind of opportunities are there that you're seeing both, you know, Right. Well, and also um, other companies. Yes. And there are new needs. I mean, we are like doing much more business on e-com. We've had to accelerate like our plans for e-com and growth and what we're doing there. And what does that require? It requires photo shoots and more content and different content. Um, we also have to create like virtual showrooms right now with our clothing so that we can sell our next lines to all of our stores and customers in other parts of the world. And, and that's, you know, going to require a different set of talent and a different set of of, you know, of um, creatives, right? And and then also because all of our work is being done virtually now in, from a design perspective, we're going to need like tech designers and, and other designers to help with that. So I've already searched the platform and found a photographer I want to work with because I have to do a shoot in LA and my most of the photographers I work with are in New York. I found a graphic designer that I want to work with out here while I'm here because I, you know, I'm, I'm not doing everything in New York. So I think there are going to be opportunities and one of the things that was most important to me on the platform was that, you know, creative people today have a life where like, you know, we order all our food off of Seamless, we travel in an Uber, or we, you know, maybe don't even rent a house, we just Airbnb places and creative people want the opportunity to be able to sort of, you know, live anywhere and work everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted, and originally this platform was meant to allow for that. Now it's taken on a whole different meeting, right? Because we're all right. virtual, we're all, you know, at home, working from home, but where is home? And for a creative person that wants to see the world and travel the world and find opportunities, I'm hoping that this platform does that in a, you know, a futuristic and optimistic way too. Yeah, it's so interesting. I think about when I graduated from graduate school, and that was during the recession um, yeah. in 2009. And, um, you know, I remember it taking a while for me to find work. And eventually, I did. But I'm curious, from your perspective, you know, especially with creatively, do you think that more people will become um, specialized as, you know, people look for different needs or they'll 
kind of expand? I mean, what should job seekers really, really right. think about in your in your opinion? I think that for young people, they're going to have to be open to opportunity and they're going to have to like try things they maybe wouldn't have tried before. And I think just like at any point in time, when you're a young person entering the, you know, sort of work world in a difficult time, you've got to get your foot in the door and you've got to be able to do anything, try anything and just have a really positive attitude and take every opportunity as a moment to learn that'll lead you to the next thing. And, you know, the best career advice I always give to people is find something you love and turn it into your work. But Mm -hmm. we're in unprecedented times. So for a creative person that, you know, they're their passion is photography, but like if they need to start helping with styling or helping with graphic design or helping with something else to get their foot in the door and get there, you just got to be willing to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I almost took a job as a a teacher or a professor instead of, you know, going into journalism. Um, I'm wondering how you are saying, upbeat and in times when everything is shifting you know you have I love the brand and the aesthetic of the brand personally because you know it's you know it's 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 fun it's whimsical thank you Um, you know yeah so uh and you're also you're also making some masks by the way right oh my god okay so we sold so many masks that we actually had to take the mask down off of our site for a little bit because our warehouse had to catch up so um, I will take full blame and responsibility for some logistical issues there. Um, my whole concept was, you know, we need to destigmatize masks. We need to make masks fun. We need to make them fashion. We need to make them cute. We don't want them to remind us of something bad. We want them to remind us of something good. So I said, let's create a program where for every mask we sell, we give a mask away to someone in need, um, the medical community, uh, you know, communities in need. And the the marketing component was amazing and it went crazy and viral and we sold like almost 100,000 masks in like 10 days. The problem was that my warehouse could not keep up with that wow. because my warehouse isn't used to sending out like individual, like they're, you know, they'll send a couple thousand packages out a day, but not 80,000. So it's taken... <laughs> it's taken us um, a little bit of time and, and some people were upset, which I felt horrible about because I take so much pride in having like amazing customer service and, um, you know, an amazing sort of like Alice and Olivia community. So we had to really kind of, you know, just be super honest and apologize and just be like, listen, we, we're doing the best we can. We're trying to get these out. But the masks have been a huge hit. I used really soft fabric and really fun prints. And I mean, even my kids are like, we like they love them because they're cute. And I think that's what needs to happen right now in the world is that we need to wear masks because when we wear masks, we protect ourselves and we protect others. And that's what is going to be a necessary component of the future um, in order for us to, you know, sort of, uh, I don't want to say exit, graduate from from this this period in time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was something we did. Is, but, but my brand has always been meant to uplift. I mean, one of the things that was so important to me from the day I began was that 
everyone who walked in one of my stores walked out feeling better. I want my clothes to make people happy, to make people smile, to make them feel good when they put them on. Um, I never believed in that era of fashion where you felt intimidated walking into a store, intimidated trying things on, upset when you walked in the dressing room. I always wanted our culture and our vibe and our whole ethos to be the exact opposite of, of that sort of fashion stigma. And that's what we've worked really hard to to build. I think right now on social media, sometimes it's hard even for me because I'm like, am I being, you know, I want to uplift people. I want to be optimistic. I want to make people feel good. But then at times, like I've gotten feedback, like, well, you know, you're out in Malibu and we're, you know, we don't even have this or we can't even afford your clothes. And so I'm always trying to balance kind of, you know, the the element of social media that's important to like use to market and sell things, but also to make sure that I'm being and or trying to be really thoughtful and aware and and considerate of of what people are going through right now. Yeah, like you said, it's a balance, right? Like even supply and demand and transparency and um, being helpful, being honest, being optimistic. Um, so I, I I understand that, and I think there are a lot of high emotions and there's also a lot of high needs. So um, Stacy Bendet from Alice and Olivia, and now Creatively. I do want to thank you for your time and um, for your efforts um, in, in staying creative and helping creatives. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really hope that people download Creatively, start using it, start posting their resumes, start posting their portfolios and, you know, really use it as a tool to share their work and find new opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully um, many more opportunities to come. Yes. Thank you. It was so great to meet you. Likewise. Our theme music is by home. David Griner will be back soon. This episode was edited by Lane McGivney and produced by yours truly. Please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. And you can also email us your thoughts at podcast at adweek.com. Have a great week.